Hello, welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. I am Elijah. I am Adam. I am Alex. And I'm Greg. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at keytallmythologies at protonmail.com. Also, please visit our website, keytallmythologies.com, which has a reading schedule if you'd like to read along. Today, we are reading book seven of the Aeneid. Book seven of Aeneid involves the arrival of the Trojans in Italy, and King Latinus was given a prophecy that he has to give his daughter Lavinia to Aeneas but there is a conflict because Lavinia is betrothed to Turnus a different Latin king but the the news of Latinus giving Lavinia to Aeneas Juno the goddess hears of this and begins to sow discord among the Latin people by sending Electo the fury Electo causes quite a bit of trouble the Latin forces gather for war Okay, so my opening question is going to center around the use of Juno in this chapter. She has been a god, the goddess who's been dogging the Trojans throughout. She is their sort of their sworn enemy among the among the Roman pantheon, and she has attempted to stop them from reaching the shores of Italy, but she's failed to do that. And now that she's failed to do that, she um, moves to a second strategy to prevent the founding of Rome and sows war between the the Latin people who are already there and the Trojans who've just arrived. Um, so my opening question is, the use of Juno in this chapter felt almost explicitly psychological in the sense that she provided an additional unnecessary explanation for the rapid descent of a high stakes, high tension situation into factional violence. This is especially true given that she opens her monologue by admonishing herself over her own failure to stop the Trojans from reaching Italy, which indicates uh, she's ultimately powerless before fate and she knows it. What do we make of Juno as a god, as a villain, and as a poetic device in book seven? I really appreciated your question, Adam. It reminded me of when we were discussing the gods in Homer, and I had read part of Walter Kaufman's book, and he presented that thought about the, the gods being explanatory for human caprice, capricious acts. Of course, what we have to think about is Virgil being far removed in time from Homer, as we've talked about before. His use of the god is a little bit more crafted, like I suppose, maybe less mysterious. But it seems like certainly with Electo, Electo is sowing caprice and madness in these people's minds. Yeah, if we want to further draw out the comparison to Homer, I feel like there's a lot we can do with this because I feel like this scene picks up similarly to where the Odyssey picks up around book 16 after Odysseus lands in, in Ithaca. So in the Aeneid, line 290 or so, this is when Juno spots it. So, and she literally spies it. So she says, so they, they've given the gifts, everyone's kind of very happy. Then Jove's fierce wife flew in her chariot from Yanakis's home, Argos. From on high and far off Pachinus in Sicily, she saw Aeneas happy with his feet fleet. They worked at building, settled trustingly, forgot their ships. 
She halted, pierced by grief, then shook her head and from her heart poured this. And then she gives her big speech. So I thought this was really striking on a number of levels. The first of which, right, she hasn't even noticed what's going on. And then all of a sudden she sees Aeneas's happiness and that spurs anger in her. That's one, one part of it. Another part of it is in the Odyssey, Odysseus completes this whole miserable journey. But the last part of the book is him dealing with the situation at home. So like the Aeneas, he's forgotten his ships, but the whole situation at home is phrased explicitly politically. Like this is in the, in the Odyssey, the disaster at home is not some God's doing. It's just like the king needs to be at work and he needs to organize the suitors and get rid of them. It's not like Poseidon is manipulating or contriving. Here in the Aeneid, they've forgotten the ships, they made it home, and all is good. But then all of a sudden, a god has to intervene and manipulate in order to cause the founding from, a, like, to founder or, or something. So I think that is just something with, like, their idea of history, that being at home has some kind of historical con like consequences and that like home is a place where the very powerful gods are interfering or altering cities and fates like that. Whereas it seemed like the gods themselves were very powerful in the Greek pantheon, but they seemed le much less concerned with the affairs at home. Thinking about the connection with Homer here, there's the second the second invocation in the poem in line 40 of book seven, which I thought was really interesting. So Aeneas says, goddess, direct your poet, savage warfare I'll sing, and kings whose courage brought them death. The Tuscan army, all Hesperia rallied to arms. This is a higher story starting, a greater work for me, right? So there's some very clear sense that this poem can be split in two, and this is the hinge. And I think... Also, I note, he, uh, he calls on a rat, a ratto there, the muse of love. Interesting, yeah. That's how he begins that invocation, I believe. Yes. Erato. Yeah, yeah, so it seems, I'm not sure if I would describe it as irony, but it's, it's just notable that he begins the invocation by the, invoking the muse of love and then describes a quick descent into bloody warfare. Mm-hmm. It's going to carry us through the end of the book, right? That yeah. Not to spoil the ending, but I guess to spoil the ending, the battle between Turnus and Aeneas is sort of the climax of, of the text that we have, at least. But I was sort of thinking about the connection with Homer, Greg, that this second invocation marks the moment when the Iliad becomes the touchstone for uh, Virgil more than the Odyssey. In other words, books one through six were the Odyssey retold. And then now that we've landed, we're sort of switching to the Iliad's territory. And the first major connection I'd make is in book two of the Iliad, you have the catalog of ships. At the end of this book, we have the catalog of warriors that is generically, you know, identical, I think, or very, very similar. That's sort of how I was thinking about the connection. But I don't know, does that make sense to you all? The Trojans yeah. are directly paralleled with the Greek forces in the Iliad having landed on the shore and they're meant to build defensive walls. So they start building a structure that's very much a, a hearkening back to Iliad. They are meant to parallel the Greeks arriving on the shores of Ilium in order to destroy Troy. Mm -hmm. That's like a, a, a link, a chain link, you know, connecting the Iliad to the Trojans. 
to this second half of this book. Yeah, and then I think about the beginning of the Iliad, right? The first word, right? Rage. And, and you have this idea that this rage is like this force that's sort of wreaking havoc on Greek army or the organization of the Greek army. And then here you have Juno. You have Juno through the fury sort of infusing something that seems parallel to rage. And we could talk about, it feels more sort of demonic, for lack of a better word to me, than than anything we see in the Iliad. But you basically see this sort of insanity being injected to these three different groups. Yeah, especially with where she, uh, where she, where the fury manifests herself in her true form with Turnus. And I mean, he, he seems really just to go mad in a, a way that I don't know what we've seen with any other human divine interactions exactly because she doesn't take control of him she just kind of drives him to frenzy you know because mm-hmm. his first his first words are like i'm not a, i'm not afraid of you you know i'm in control of what's happening here you're you're a woman i'm a man i'm in charge and then she like turns into this <laughs> terrifying hell you know hell Monst- beast monster, and he just yeah. loses his mind yeah. it's like he's, he's described as a you know boiling water or something water that comes to a boil and it we can also think about what we thought about with Dido because there's something qualitatively similar about sort of Dido's madness or frenzy that we see in all three groups and we see among both male and female characters. I used the word demonic earlier, but I mean that very loosely, but I'd be interested in other words to sort of describe this frenzy, which doesn't seem, it seems qualitatively different than the sort of things we see in the Greek epics, uh, to me at least, but I don't yet have the language to describe what is going on here. Yeah, I I think demonic is actually a pretty good word because there is a sense of possession that seems pretty absent from the Greek epics. And I think what Adam was saying about losing your mind also seems really key here. Like it seems they believe that there's some kind of rational day-to-day going aboutness that can be taken away by a divine presence as opposed to the Greek system where heroes are already very hasty, angry, difficult people. And if they're upset or they're dramatic, that's just them being heroes, but it could also be divine influence. But that's different than almost exact possession that seems to happen with Dido and now with Tur- with Turnus where someone's sanity is lost it's like the Romans have an idea of sanity now yeah can taken we, or restored yeah I think that's right Greg can we can we look at the passage where Amata who is Latinius's wife three line 345 Latinus has had this vision and now he knows that he can't give his daughter to Turnus anymore he has to give her to a foreigner who will turn out to be Aeneas and then the wife, Amata, really wants her daughter to marry Turnus. And then the fury comes and intervenes. And this is the language. Yeah, it very much feels like possession. This is the language that Virgil uses to describe the fury's influence on her. She's wondering to herself, Trojans had come. Would they steal Turnus's wedding? Dark snakes made up the fury's hair. She tossed one to, she tossed one to glide maddening hellish through the dress into the heart and rattled all the house beneath her clothes it coiled around her smooth breasts she couldn't feel it as it breathed its poison her frenzy as a gold change that huge serpent twined her neck hung his ribbon from her headband wove through her hair and slid around her body the venom oozed in and the sickness started to storm her senses 
wrap her bones in fire. Before the flames engulfed her heart and mind, she spoke quite gently as a mother would and wept. Her daughter married to a Phrygian. Uh, and as I intimated just a minute ago, this language feels very similar to the language that describes how Dido is afflicted. Um, it also feels very much like possession to me in some way, though I don't want to Christianize it uh, necessarily because there might be different sort of nuance. But yeah, what do you guys make of, of this moment? One thing that I was trying to think about there was, I think you're right, that it, that is closer to Dido than what seems to happen with Turnus. Well, maybe not, but I was trying to think about this in comparison to the scene in book two that we talked quite a bit about where the snakes come onto the shore and um, murder Lacoon and his two boys for the theoretically for the sin of throwing the spear into the belly of the Trojan horse. And there's just, I mean, there are so many snakes in this book, but they are, I think, only metaphorical in the sense, possibly metaphorical in the sense that they're describing possession or madness or something like that. They have this very imagistic character in comparison to the, the previous snakes. But I mean, yeah, I, I, in terms of the, the question I asked at the beginning, I don't see any way you could really read that passage and not read it as a kind of psychology, right? It doesn't seem like a contemporary reader, a Roman contemporary Roman reader would think of that and think like, this is a literal description of a snake slithering along the ground and like merging with someone's body. Even if they believed in the goddess and the fury, they would still think of it as an image representing how the goddess like exerted control from a distance on this person's psychology. Adam, didn't you ask in your question, or didn't you say something along the lines of uh, Juno being a sort of unnecessary explanation? Yeah, well, I was thinking like, you don't need a goddess to explain why, <laughs> why the people would act the way they did in this scene, in this book. I mean, if strangers show up on the shore of your city, mm -hmm. take up you know, they're all warriors, they have no home, take up encampments, they fall to on you for, you know, they beg you essentially for space to set up their camp. And the first thing that happens is your princess is like given away to their leader, you know, and um, presumably these people are- Endangering the alliance that's yeah. going to be- yeah. You know, and these are warlike people in the first place. So I'm sure they're, they're eyeing each other kind of, you know, cagely. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't take much to set off a conflict in that scenario, you know, and it certainly doesn't require a fury to explain why Turnus is 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 really upset. Right? Even more complicated is the chain of goddesses, right? It's not just Juno who already seems to possess the power to like break people's minds because she does that earlier with women on the sh shore. No, I guess she always calls on Dream. Was it Iris who acted on her behalf to Iris? To convince, yeah. In that case, a rainbow drives them into madness, and and they right. seem to. Yeah, so there's, so there's this whole convoluted process by which Juno, who's already not needed as an explanation, goes and invokes other more kind of chthonic deities or theories mm -hmm. in order to deal the damage and cause people's insanity. So there's also like the women who like sort of march into the woods in this frenzy to like worship Bacchus and they don't quite, I don't know that they quite know what, what's driving them. I mean, we can look in the text, I guess, but basically what you're getting at, Adam, and I'm sort of, I'm sort of ambivalent about this. I'm trying to think through it. What you're getting at, Adam, is that all three of these things are sort of a naturalistic explanation for this big change in the social arrangement that's brought about by Aeneas's arrival. I will say, I don't think 
I would say that we as 21st century people have a, a prejudice that the naturalistic explanation is superior to the non-naturalistic that I, the Romans don't have. So I don't think they, I don't think they would say it's unnecessary in that sense. Well, I guess I was trying to draw a comparison. Let's go back to the snake scene with Lacoon, right? Like in that case, the naturalistic explanation, you could make one, but it seems much harder to understand what the Trojans, how the Trojans could possibly have accepted the Trojan horse so quickly and so unhesitate and so unskeptically without some kind of divine explanation, at least as part of the explanation. But here it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like there's even in the terms the poem sets out and feels like this is just going to be a high, high and a very, you know, high, a high stress, intense situation. I mean, almost every time you put two, <laughs> two groups of warriors near each other in an epic poem, someone ends up killing someone else, you know, that's just like a, it's a baseline of the genre. The only thing I could think of that would necessitate a kind of divine explanation in what you're talking about is a breakdown in diplomacy slash hosting. So we see in this book, right, a thousand warriors arrive on somebody's shore, which in a modern society would induce war and has induced war before, right? But in this society, there are like active measures against that through the host system. And that seems to be employed to great effect, right? They show up, they give the Latinas a ton of money uh, and nice gifts. They make a very good impression. And he is- I also say for the second time, you will not regret showing us hospitality and <laughs> are immediately proven yeah. wrong once again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And right, so two nations now have taken the Trojans in and are, are burned by it. So that's, and, and I think that's interesting to put Juno against Jove there, because Jove is like the king of, I think he's still, even in Roman times, king of hospitality. But seeing hospitality be transformed into diplomacy seems really interesting, where it's almost like Virgil is reaching for, and you know, this is maybe perhaps like an interpretive bend you can take Virgil in, but if, if Virgil on a secret level is yearning for the peace that he isn't seeing in the empire of Rome, I wonder if he's like looking at this scene and, and saying it's the, the divine elements interfering with the, the channels of diplomacy or something that are resulting in these kind of breakdowns that we're seeing again and again. And that feels like there's some kind of historical cultural moment that's ruptured here where diplomacy occurs and fails and the, therefore the supernatural is just as present and, and as essential as the Laocon scene, right? Because the Laocon scene is this naturalistic, totally traditional thing, which is the priest says, this is a bad omen, the priest says it, and then is superseded by supernatural events there. So I'm, I'm wondering if that maybe that can help us make sense of this kind of bizarre breakdown what does feel super and, and what does feel supernatural about it is that all of these things are falling apart at the same time in a way that feels coordinated right like any one of these there's at least there are these three groups then there's Ilias Aeneas's son shooting this stag sort of apparently on a whim right so there's like four or five events and this was really just speaking to Virgil's the craft of his storytelling by the end of this book the really my predominant sense was everyone knows they're going to war nobody really knows exactly why this has to happen it doesn't feel like there's any one predominant agent it just feels like they're all swept up in something that is much bigger than themselves 
that is beyond any individual's agency or even understanding. And I do think that that is the phenomenology of social experience. That is how we experience it. So I do think a natural there is a naturalistic explanation for this sensation that this thing that's bigger than any particular group is just has a life of its own. But that's certainly the sense that I had by the end of the book. Well, that's that's also feels kind of like how history operates, where when it comes, it all comes at once, right? The pattern of security and peace. And Virgil makes a big deal about the fact that King Latinus can't throw open the gates of war, that Juno herself arrives, yanks the handle open and like rips open the gates of war and says, like, let's just begin. That feels attuned to a kind of, yeah, or historical or like, natural explanation of how any individual can't keep back the flood of events when something starts falling apart. One thing I thought on that note about Latunus was that he himself is never the target of any divine action. He just can't handle the situation. And he like recedes into the shadows and he refuses to open the gates. But of course he can't turn aside the forces that are already marshaled to open the gates. That's why he it's not there in the first place. I mean, it's pretty clear that's a criticism of him as a leader, but I also wonder if that's a way of justifying what the Trojans are about to, that the Trojans are about to about to wage war on the Latins and, and take over their civilization. That somehow Aeneas's leadership as compared to uh, to the old king's leadership is a yeah, a form of justification of the of the war. There's an there's an attempt here to both it feels like Virgil is trying to have the Trojans be successful conquering warriors and also to be completely just and not at fault or not blameworthy for anything that's about to happen and i wondered if yeah that the characterization of of king latin has had something to do with that so we're asking about or the the righteousness of the trojans is an important thing to maintain for virgil you're saying that Latinus, in accepting the Trojan presence and agreeing to give his daughter to Aeneas, that somehow is important for uh, establishing or reaffirming the, uh, the righteousness of the Trojans? Well, not so much that he accepted Aeneas. That was what he was supposed to do. That was told to him by divine portents, right? So he understood that correctly, but he... What he doesn't do correctly is handle the mania that takes control of his people. Like we've seen Aeneas able to control control mania and frenzy and able to calm situations of possible violence before. So like around 580. So this is after Turnus has started to started to work people up. So they're rampaging through the through the town and it says um through the trackless woods and Bacchic bonds now gathered, Amada's name had weight, demanding war. Amada's the queen. Evil war. Everyone was now possessed. The omens, the decrees of fate, meant nothing. They avidly besieged Latinus's palace. A cliff above the sea, he stood unmoving. A sea cliff in reverberating storms, firm in its bulk it holds. The waves throng roaring around it. Crags and frothing boulders moan, unshaken, pouring back the battered seaweed. The old man had no power to defeat their blind plans. Heartless Juno set things going. Often he called on gods and empty air. Fate wrecks our ships, a whirlwind whips us onward. Poor things, you'll make atonement with your blood. 
Turnus, your sin will bring harsh punishment. Too late you'll pray and try to buy the gods off. But I've earned rest. I'm on the haven's edge and robbed of nothing but a happy death. He kept indoors and dropped the reins of state. Based on what's happened previously in the book, it seems to me that's a pretty serious criticism of his ability to be a king and to be a leader. And he kept indoors and dropped the reins of state. Leaving the reins of state for Aeneas to pick up, obviously. Yeah, or some, yeah, I mean, creating the conditions where some more capable leader is going to come along and take control. Yes, yeah, since Latinus is old, he doesn't fit the uh, mold of the warlord like Aeneas would. Hmm, that's interesting. This scene to me is reminiscent of the, of the way Priam acts during the fall of Troy. He sort of picks up a weapon, but he's not quite strong enough to use it. And he's just there in the temple. And he's basically an ineffectual leader as the Greeks overrun and burn the city. I'm a little bit hesitant to read this the way you're wanting to read it, Adam, because I see it as just another tragic, tragic end of a leader that is not totally dissimilar to the end of Priam. And the second thing is, I mean, to open the gates of war, I guess would have been a bad thing, right? Because he would have been endorsing the action against Aeneas and the Trojans. I do agree that he, his fault was that he couldn't control the passions of his people. And the part you just read, I mean, it seems pretty clear that Juno had set, started the plans in such a way that nobody could stop them outside of another god, maybe. Yeah, no, that seems compelling. I think putting him, comparing him to Priam is interesting because then you can read what's happening and what's going to happen for the rest of the book as the Trojans are occupying the position of the Greeks, but they're also correcting what the Greeks did wrong. So they're succeeding in the way the Greeks succeeded, but also succeeding in a superior way. I still feel like to drop the reins of state and walk away and just allow these passions to take control feels like a very, there's just no way that Virgil could have intended that to be dignified or, or, or you know, virtuous. Yeah, I mean, I think you're certainly right that Latinus fails in terms of demonstrating pietas in, in this moment. And Priam seems like he does. Priam seems like he is still supposed to have some dignity to the end. I mean, he doesn't fail to control the passions of the Trojans. I agree. I think you're right. I think the point of com comparison was that I think he's like just totally ineffectual. Priam is. As I remember, he's slipping in his son's blood, right? It's a scene filled with pathos because this powerful, you know, noble and i think the rhetorical effect that virgil intends is to portray the greeks as animalistic particularly the son of achilles who's the one who kills both priam and his son i'm trying to think about how to phrase this but i think it's worth trying to think about how virgil sort of balances the appeal of peace and war because if we think about the the roman empire right it's a, in one hand the pax augusta there's a real value of on peace and orderliness and there's also really a, a value on martial glory and, and martial readiness. And I sort of get the sense, I don't even know that I could point to a place in the text, but I get a sense reading this book that Virgil's really trying to say war is admirable and it's a form of pietas, but you can't put too much weight on that. We also, we also like ultimately desire peace. And these two things are both sort of in service of empire in some way. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. I'd be interested to hear how... Virgil's thinking about the value, relative value of peace and war uh, in this book or in anything we've read up to this point. The way you put it, Elijah, is exactly the difference. So it seems like 
wars can have value in a way that's fundamentally different from older epics. So like the Greek epicing stuff, it seems like war is taken for granted. You start in the middle of war and then all the, the interesting things happen just because of that. There is the problem of like, well, how did this war begin? But it seems like it's always a petty issue that just kind of blew out of control. And yeah, the gods are kind of at fault for that petty issue blowing out of control. You know, no one really cares about Helen except for Agamemnon and Menelaus. And it seems like the only reason uh, Agamemnon really cares about Helen is he just wants to loot the city and get the good, the good money. Here, though, it seems like justice is a really important part of war. And that if a war begins improperly, there's something incorrect about that. And I think that's why the other reason we're, we're striking the scene is, as, as, as we kind of brought up earlier, the Trojans are an invading force, but they have to have justice for that. And I feel like this is probably something akin to like even a historical fact the Romans could recognize. Roman soldiers arrive on a beach in some strange land. They bribe the king. Then war breaks out. And the Romans say, well, we did the right thing at first. We established justice. Now we just have to break you and colonize you. Like in some ways, there's something very propagandistic. And like even that has a deep modern contemporary ring uh, with, with a lot of, you know, both the, the Russia and the United States now, I feel like employ a very similar tactic where, you know, you set up, oh, we're the big hosts, and then it, there's some kind of tension that breaks out in the war. If you are interested in justice and language around justice and virtue, then the way to solve that, to solve that problem is to operate from the premise that our system is the best system. And therefore, by bringing our system to civilizations and peoples and, you know, whatever barbarians and savages outside of it, we are actually like improving their, fixing their, the flaws in their system. Not, you know, and, and the proof our system is better is demonstrated by the fact that we can go there and defeat them in war, right? Our superiority is demonstrated first by, well, actually, I don't know, I mean, it's a question. So you think in, at least in the language of this poem and more maybe in Roman language more generally, is it like that the, the Senate and the laws and the civilization of Rome demonstrates superiority first and then like, the military superiority is a consequence of that or is it the other way around because in this book the latins are sort of coded as less developed than the romans right just in terms of their weapons like their weapons are just like cudgels and sticks you know and, and hand axes they made themselves they don't have armor they don't have shields they don't have bows and arrows they don't seem to have like cavalry and like the latins have roman rituals they have a senate even to some extent, it looks like the, the Roman gods. However, much ado is made about Aeneas bringing his family gods to Latium. The Greek pantheon has been brought or injected into Roman society by means of you know, this myth of Aeneas arriving and bringing the gods there. And there are also the household gods, so they're the Penates, they're gods of civilization. Aeneas is bringing order and civilization to this. But the reason he's justified in doing that is, well, I fought in this huge, glorious war, the Trojan War, which pales any war that you savages have ever been in. And I am an excellent and proforious man, right? So Aeneas's fame is an integral part of the reason that he's a just actor. So it really just feels like propaganda takes one hand and puts the other out, takes the other hand, puts it out. It seems like there's a give and take with justice and glory here. 
glory is justice, justice is glory, they're interrelated, they can't be explained. And propaganda acts to fill in that aspect. So when there's a question of is justice or glory at stake here, propaganda will cause glory to be justified or justice to be glorified. And that, that means that you're just never left with the question, is Aeneas doing the right thing? I think what both you, both you uh, Adam and Greg are saying is right, but I would wanna also add the dimension. It's not as clear to me that the claim is qualitative in the sense of we the Romans are qualitatively better in terms of politics or in terms of martial, in terms of war. It all it seems to me that the the predominant justification is teleological. We the Romans are the founders of this, you know, have been divinely mandated to found this eternal empire that will govern the whole world. Any other sort of plans or desires or cultures that get in the way of that are are not divinely mandated and therefore we're justified in crushing them. That seems to me to be the overarching meta narrative of the of the Aeneid and of the Roman Empire as, as far as I understand it and then I think the justice and glory are sort of coordinated with that in some way yeah I mean certainly there's they understand themselves as having a divine mandate to rule the world I mean that comes up over and over again I mean, that comes from every book I think and here even here in Juno's speech you know where she ruse that they've arrived successfully on the shores of Italy she recognizes that she cannot prevent Aeneas from achieving that destiny, right? She just says, I'm just going to make it painful and bloody, right? Which I think, I mean, I think again, she, she's sort of representing a predictable and in some ways understandable counter movement to this like march of destiny, right? It's like, even if you, if we set out the terms from the beginning, from the, you know, the very beginning of book one, it's like, here's the trajectory of the Roman empire. Here's how Aeneas fits into it. Here's how it begins. You know, here's why it can't be stopped. Here's why Rome is great. And, and Juno kind of represents this, like this counter force that is like scraping against that with, you know, with every tool that she has, even though she knows eventually she will fail, but it's like somehow there's something I, you know, I, I like, <laughs> I said this before, but I, I like Juno's dialogue in this poem. She has a lot of there's like this kind of dark gallows humor to a lot of what she says, you know, and I think she refers to this war as her wedding present for Aeneas and uh, Latvia. Lavinia. Uh, Lavinia. Yeah. So she says, they'll let this, let this be my wedding present for them. So there's a certain, I don't know, I guess I, I don't hesitate to say dignity, but there's a kind of, a kind of virtue in her defense of a lost cause. I think on that note, the, the divine providence under which the Romans operate does confer glory and justice to them. But I feel like those three things all sort of operate in like triangulated. We are glorious because we are just, and we are just because we are glorious, and we are glorious and just because we have this divine decree that, because we have this divine decree that we will rule the world, which is proven by our glory, you know, demonstrated by how glorious and just we are. <laughs> it's like, you can't really, you need all three legs of the tripod for it to stand, I, I think. Yeah, I think that's basically right, Adam. I think, well, I think there's some sense in book seven that that Turnus going to war against Aeneas and the Trojans is somehow unjust. And, and maybe I'm reading it into it. Maybe that's not there. But my thought is, well, what he's doing is actually eminently reasonable. I was slated to marry this powerful princess of the neighboring kingdom i may have been working on this marriage for months or years you know angling to try to get it and then this guy shows up and then all of a sudden it's yanked out from under me 
I'm pretty powerful, so I'm going to go to war and and try to defeat this guy so I can save this marriage deal, right? This essentially arranged marriage that everybody around wants to marry this woman. That The only way that I can read that as unjust is if I say, well, Turnus, there is a divine plan for history and it's unfolding and you're not part of it. So you are sort of, you know... <laughs> Kicking against the pricks, right? As the book of Revelation say, right? Kicking against the goads. Yeah, other than that, it doesn't seem to me either particularly unjust or unglorious what he's doing. I don't know. Does that make sense as a, a question? It, it makes perfect sense in like continue to situate in historical context, right? So Augustus is emperor. His claim to the empire is hardly, hardly more tenable than any of the other like chief patrons claims, except for the fact that he won and they didn't. So there's so much ex post facto justification and it feels like that's a powerful tool here that's not resolved until, you know, after the battle fought, is fought, then it can come out. And now I'm starting to see why marriage and love are such oppositional elements or throughout the story so like the poem is told from Aeneas's description apparently Erato the love the love muse knows about it and Venus is his mother so it seems like you basically have love on Aeneas's side whereas marriage is is this oppositional framework which I associate with like social customs and um the way the world works or something. And it, it, there is this weird thing too, where it seems like love is very masculine and marriage is very feminine. Venus has very little power over women, except for Dido. I guess that kind of throws a wrench in this, but it seems like Juno has incredible power over women and is constantly manipulating them to ruin Aeneas's life. So yeah, there's some, there's some kind of like thing where the kind of brain we're describing is not necessarily within the existing social framework so we're going to like grant powers to these more primordial forces love and then when those powers emerge victorious then this existence will be justified i guess i don't know yeah i didn't really think about it in that way at all so it's it's interesting i'm sort of trying to process let me see book seven i just wanted to look at the language so what it's line 37 Erato, tell me about the times, the rulers, and what ancient Latium was when foreigners first beached their army fleets in Italy, and how the quarrel started. Goddess, direct your poet. Savage warfare all sing, and kings whose courage brought them to death, which we already read. So she is the muse of love poetry. I think what what I'm sort of tripping over thinking about your hypothesis, Greg, is that it's not clear to me that love is that important for the marriage between Aeneas and Lavinia. They haven't even seen each other. They've never even interacted. I don't, maybe this isn't what you're getting at, but I don't quite see this dichotomy of like Turnus and Lavinia are, it's sort of marriage and social custom. Aeneas and Lavinia is sort of this more primal love. Yeah, that makes sense. I think maybe, let me try to pivot in this way. So Twice now, a marriage has been foiled in the sense of first with Dido, there seems to be some kind of recognition that whatever they did in the cave was a marriage. And Juno's on that side. And since she's the goddess of marriage 
and of the household in that way, that seems to be some kind of like deep violation of social order. But now Turnus's like engagement is also violated and that causes a kind of eruption of social order. It definitely, Aeneas doesn't come across as a lover in any sense of the world, but there is this weird thing where the social customs keep getting ripped apart or are or, or so unfounded. Like it's, it's just so hard to reconcile this diplomacy thing that happens in the beginning of the chapter with the goddess of, of marriage ripping up all of society, spilling fury into everyone's lungs and possessing them so they get whipped up into this frenzy to cause war. That's the thing that's kept trying to trip me up is like, why is she so violent and so much against or like so vengeful? And I think, I just think the only reason it has to be some kind of like, she is dedicated to some kind of oaths and oath keeping. And it seems like Aeneas's power isn't bound to some kind of oath. It's bound to some kind of like history or fate. So he violates his oath with Dido and then his existence violates Turnus's oath with Lavinia or something. There's also a, just a regular association of love and violence, right? I'm not sure what love meant or means to the, the Romans or what it means in this poem. I don't think it means romantic love in our sense. Some kind of association between, between love or desire or possession and violence is made pretty much continually throughout uh, we can see that with Dido. And of course, you can, the whole Paris and Helen, right, is the, is the initiating incident of the whole saga, the whole epic poem tradition in some way. Again, yeah, thinking of Juno as like the goddess of love or the, is she the goddess of like home, the heart, the hearth? Is that her role as well? Sort of, have... yeah. So like, they're, like, you've got your household gods that like literally don't move with the house. So they're like these spirits that keep the house clean and safe. Then there are your family gods, which do move house to house. And those are the ones Aeneas is bringing across the ocean. And then you have Hestia, like hearth proper. I'm the god that keeps the fire going. And then on top of that, you've got Juno, who's the like, mm -hmm. psycho structure of the home itself. And the, you know, that the gods are a family is Juno's power and embodiment. And the family permeates on a metaphysical level, all things. Yeah, so I mean, it seems to me they're, they're part of what Juno's being associated with is the reactive or counteractive force to this force of Roman destiny slash Aeneas's destiny, right? And that is somehow also associated with love and and maybe maybe sexual desire as well. I'm not sure how to make all that line up, but... Well, I'm wondering if it's something as simple as like history is forbidden or contrary to the family. Right, like yeah, so Augustus was divorced three times or twice, um, and what's he happening? Exiled his own daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to die on, a, on an island. Yeah, exactly. Roman family is being annihilated at, at this time in all these civil wars and conflicts, and adoption, not like parentage and lineage, is the new mode of passing on empire. Right, you choose not your son, but like who the best up and comer is, and they become your son and then you you perform some kind of right and that's who the next king's going to be so the the role of familial relations is completely abandoned is being abandoned right and, and like in the scene you see these like not only is it it's like three different ethnic groups blending you've got the trojans you've got the 
Latins, you've got the Sabines, right? Like there's an existing alliance of several different tribes, all who ally behind the Latins against this foreign tribe, who's the Trojans. And so the, the bloodline is being completely, there's no purity to it. Whereas in, it seems like in the Greek system, you're basically like, you're Greek, right? There's no, there's no way around it. Um, and everyone can mm -hmm. trace their bloodlines really concretely. And, and, and the, you know, that's the other thing about this book. There are almost no patronymics, right? Even though Aeneas feels deeply for his father, he's not constantly like son of Anchises, uh, son of Anchises, which is all throughout the Greek system. Here, the uh -huh. whole gen, uh -huh. gen thing is obliterated. And so it seems like a traditional aristocracy in the sense of like a bloodline, a noble class, a familial type of regime is being replaced with some kind of like historical, mighty, empirical, mm. like social order. It just feels like love is tacked onto that as an ex post facto justification of why it has power and and like to give it some kind of weight. Like I don't I don't know if they'll ever make this argument in the book, but like maybe the marriage is justified because they're gonna love each other a whole bunch. Or maybe the marriage is justified. I don't know. I like literally I'm just guessing. It'll be out of character, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, I don't yeah. Yeah. Although there was things in Roman society. So like for instance, Pompey's marriage with um, Julius Caesar's daughter actually was was very widely hailed as a love match and people were blown away that, that two people could love each other. Like a husband and wife <laughs> loved each other and they made fun of it all the time. And it was like this big yeah, they didn't constantly have like adulteries that he didn't go yeah. to uh, he didn't like, go to brothels all the time. Him. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense to these people. So it, I you think I mean given I think that sounds right and at a high level and uh, that's more or less what we've been saying, you know, about the book throughout. I, I still think Juno represents nothing that's tacked on, but something that's like, yeah, just a necessary reaction to to that historical march that you're describing. We haven't we haven't talked about it all so far as the as the catalog of the warriors, because there's less to do with that, I think, philosophically. But it is notable that the warriors that are cataloged are all from the opposing side, right? From the the losing side, you know, it's, you don't get, we don't even really have any names of, of Trojan warriors, except for Aeneas and his son. And there's a few other ones. I mean, Pelindris is dead. And there are a couple of named, named characters. So we do not, we definitely do not get here as a catalog of all the glorious Trojan warriors as they're on their way to battle. We get the indigenous warriors, right? Right. Well, and those indigenous warriors are going to be the forefathers of Roman society. So there's this weird thing where you know, and, and it seems like in the catalog of ships in the Iliad, it was a big deal because you could point to your grandfather, great grandfather's grandfather, whatever, and say like, that man was on the boat and I was on the boat and, you know, like, rah, 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 we were fought in the war. Where here, it seems like the noble society is going to gain its own historical recognition by saying they had an ancestor who fought in this war, etc. But again, it is on the losing side. Yeah, it's this kind of like cultural injection of Greekness phrased as Trojanness. I actually really like the catalogs. I feel like they tell you a lot about what the people value and like what they do. And it is, you know, of course, a really striking thing, very late historical, is that there's a female warrior, Camilla mentioned, of the Volsci, which seems rather striking to, and she's the last note that she. You know, she, her hair is clasped and she's got a bow and arrow and a staff with iron. I guess that's a proto-spear or something. Yeah, and she, yeah. Becomes, she becomes a major character in the narrative. I wanted to ask about 
there's a lot of things on the table. I wanted to go back real quick and ask about these lines in the procession, sort of in light of the conversation we were having about Juno. This is line 635. So this is right after Juno goes and she opens up the iron war gates. And then you see all of these sort of five mighty cities, right, made their anvils echo. Um, and they're all coming out. And then there's this line describing some of the Latins forgetting their devotion to the plowshare. And I'd be really curious if devotion there is, is the word pietas. And I kind of suspect that it is. Forgetting their devotion to the plowshare and sickle, men reforged their father's blades. I think this is a really interesting moment because insofar as Juno is the god of domesticity, right? Her actions are leading men away from the domesticity of the hearth. They're taking they're taking the, you know, the hose or whatever and, and reshaping them into swords. So in some ways, it, it starts to feel like Juno is undermining her own qualities as a goddess in sparking this war, which is bringing men away from home and hearth and away from a certain sort of piety. And I also think these lines are interesting because it sort of poses it as an either or. You're either going to bang that metal into one shape in order to make straight lines to plant your corn, or you're going to make it into another shape and it's going to be a sword, but it's not both and it's either or but i don't know what do you guys make of this line and does it maybe help us think through that sort of uh puzzle we were thinking about and then the other question of course is where is love where would love fit here if anywhere yeah that was good there's another line that really struck me in the catalog a couple lines later so and i think this is kind of the same beat so there's the son lausus lausus is uh, 650 lausus horse tamer this is almost Homeric epithets, right? Conqueror of wild things who led a thousand men. And then in our text, we've got a parenthetical that says, what good to him? Which is, uh, that seems outrageous uh, level of poetic injection compared to previous things where it's like his glory, worthless, totally worthless. Why would he fight even? Worthless, bad. That's so different from the earlier catalogs where here's a glorious man and he's got 200 chips, boats, whatever. And the only time you get that kind of injection in Homer is right before a character died, right? They like kneel and it's like, he was a famous king. He had a good mother who was a nymph or something and Achilles killed him anyways, right? So there's that kind of injection, but that's so different than before even the war has begun, this like takedown of a figure and, 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 and some assertion of his worthlessness in battle. And I don't, I don't, I feel like both of those things are like, Virgil has come out clearly here as anti-war and as establishing the native Latin effort as worthless, as fruitless, which in some way seems like a really radical statement because he's criticizing Roman society and like, wow, isn't war bad? But at the same time, it also could serve propaganda really well because like, oh yeah, you know, submit to Rome, any kind of like conflict to stop the Roman Empire as a, as, as a native province against you know, the incoming emperor would be seen as futile. Yeah, I think you can kind of have it both ways if you treat it, if you treat Roman victory, you treat Trojan victory as inevitable via God's decree. You can say both that there is a dignity in, I mean, the so first thing to say what you were saying, Elijah, is that the Latin people here are defending their own home, at least from their, from their perspective, they're taking up arms to defend the hearth against an invading force 
that's certainly what Turnus thinks. That's how he's going to, you know, rile people up to his side. So there's again this equation of this equa this equating of the home with a kind of like violence, you know, like this kind of ex preferring some individual or some set of people or some location is that the, the kind of like violent preference. I, I don't know how exactly how to express that, but something like that. And that's the relationship between Juno, who is this goddess of something that you might think is peaceful or happy, <laughs> is in fact always stirring up trouble and bringing people into conflict and having people murdered and committing suicide and setting fire to everything. The second thing that I was trying to get to was if you, yeah, if you treat Latins or any people's defeat as inevitable, then it's like somehow it's both, their defeat is both justified by the gods, right? And the colonizer is correct to defeat them because it is the gods decree. And you can also look at their attempt to defend themselves as somehow dignified and noble. And you can get the pathos out of that, the inevitability of their defeat, you know? So you can sort of treat them as fully human in a way and recognize the reality of their suffering and have empathy with that while at the same time saying, but sorry about you, you know? The, the tide of history is inevitable. You were crushed by Rome, the greatest civilization in the history of the world, as the gods decreed. And that's how it has to be. I think that's a, a good description of it, Adam. And then within that framework, within the Roman framework, they see war as in the service of peace, right? We're bringing about this great peace. And so we sometimes have to engage in war, but it's like sort of this unfortunate necessity because people won't get on board with our uh, manifest destiny, as it were. Because I do think like, I think both what you just said and what Greg was saying uh, are helping me think through this sort of delicate balance that peace, peace and violence are in, in this book, in the book we wrote for today and in the, the epic generally, in the poem generally. I do get the sense that in Virgil's version of Rom Romanitas, peace is the highest good and peace being understood as Roman domination without, you know, without outbreaks of violence, right, which we... I wouldn't call it peace exactly, but the sort of absence of violence and absence of war is the highest good. But in the Roman mind, war is a means towards that end. That's that's what I think the ideology behind this this particular book we read is. Yeah, we've discussed before that the, there's a, a necessary role, like the designated mourner for things that are being lost as society changes. And even though you can recognize the logic that leads to them being lost, you still, there's still something useful about remembering them and mourning them as they, as they are lost. And I think there's also some of that here as well. You know, even if we don't want to get behind the glorious trampling of Rome towards world empire, we can recognize that groups are coming into conflict and societies are changing and people are, you know, just aging and dying and losing their hold on power and, you know, family structures are falling apart. And while there might be reasons, even good reasons for that to happen, it's still something that's worth noting and something that's worth mourning. It seems to me that Virgil is trying to occupy that role of that poet in that sense as well. And Adam, you're thinking of the Milos, Sesla Milos poem, Warsaw 1945, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I was thinking of that. Yeah, because that's in that in that poem, he like wants to celebrate the beauty of nature and wants to think about Shakespeare, but there's all these things, these people that have died and he feels the obligation. And he asked the question, am I, was I born to be a ritual mourner? And, mm -hmm. and he literally feels like the hands reaching out of the grave saying, you have to tell our story. 
It's a great poem. I was, I was also, it is a great poem. I was also thinking of, of bypassing Rue Descartes, which is just very similar in theme. And he talks about the suffering of the children from the provinces that come to the world capital, but also like how it's much better to be in the world capital than to be in the provinces, you know, and to know both. And so kind of what you're getting at, Adam, I mean, I'm gonna try to spin this out to think about the very interesting question of why the procession so for Homer, the procession has the Greek ships. That's the center. And here, uh, Aeneas has a procession of future losers, right? The people that the Trojans will defeat in order to establish Rome. And it, it seems like there's something, perhaps, I'm just going to tentatively say this, seems like there's something in the Roman character that thinks telling those people's stories, telling the loser's story isn't in, in a, at least a quasi-dignified way is intrinsically worthwhile because of how they are so tied to history that even that history that is not, even the history that is not history that directly amplifies their glory, but is, is nonetheless connected to them is still worth telling in a sympathetic way. I'm putting that forward as a total hypothesis. That's interesting. I think a couple of complications might be that the, the Trojans are actually cataloged in Homer, so as as well as the Greeks, obviously with less fanfare. But I, th I think that's like an interesting twist. And we talked about this when we talked about the Iliad a lot about how it's not a story that's necessarily focused on the Greek point of view. But I think you're right on some level that the, the importance of these losers in this case, the Roman losers has historical endpoint. I think the second thing with that too is the Romans have seen themselves as losers in like three critical ways, in ways that it seems like the Greeks never thought of themselves as. So the Romans were defeated by the Gauls when Rome was sacked in 390 BC. The Romans were basically defeated by the Carthaginians. And here we're seeing the Romans as losers on like a cultural, historical, or mythical level. So there's this strange sense that the, the Romans being more historical, having a longer sense of themselves. Great. Yeah. With, the, with the third level, with the mythical level, do you, mean, do you mean that they're losers on the mythical level and that they are descended from Troy? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And also just that they don't have their own founding myth. They need to like bring forth a separate lineage. This is the perennial question I have with this book. If Virgil's telling the story of the of you know so important to Rome, how did Rome come into being? Why does he pick the Iliad and Odyssey as his source text and not Romulus and Remus, right? Or the or the Rape of the Sabines or the other Roman founding myths? Like there are so many extant Roman founding myths, but they're not turned into epics. And I think part of it is that they're just less good stories, and so less good. You know, this is my prejudice against the Romans. But another thing is that like there's this sense that permeates Roman history of we're not always the winners, we're not always the just, we're not always the people who have a good sense of what's really going on. And so that that narrative of we need to be Hellenized, that we're, that we're a nation of savages and anticipating a Greek purification that we will then incorporate and reconquer Greece with it's just really weird. And I don't know how to fully take account of that. Well, it's literally being enacted in the mechanics of the poem. And that is, that is exactly what Virgil is doing to the Homeric tradition, vis-a-vis -vis the, the literal plot of the Aeneid as compared to the plot of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Hmm. 
when I, I was going to say, uh, I mean, Livy, who's writing more or less at the same time, he's responding to the, I mean, I, I think he's responding to the same need that Aeneas or that Virgil is responding to, but in a very different way. But the histories of, of Livy very much have the, the feel of like conscious myth-making. Is that, is that a good place to leave it for today? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a good, I guess that's a good place to end. Um, we will wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us once again on our quest for the key, key to all mythologies. <laughs> Please join us again next week when we are discussing book eight of the Indian. Good night. Good night.